The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, and the text will be on the screen as I read. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower, follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you had already begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. This is God's word. You can you be seated. Good morning, church. Thanks for gathering uh, again and for tuning in at home. Uh, as many of you have heard, we will not have uh, children's church, but if uh, parents do want to utilize the uh, uh, preschool room and the children's church room, there will be a live stream that's happening there. Uh, so if you feel uh, like your kid's getting a little too charismatic, um, either slay them in the spirit or take, take advantage of that room uh, would be kind of the guidance on that. We are uh, continuing our sermon series through 1 Corinthians, and we're drawing to a close a uh, significant section of uh, 1 Corinthians, and we pivot to essentially another topic, another element that Paul's going to address in this local church uh, in chapter 5. Uh, so this is a very important kind of pivot point in our, in our series uh, among many. So let's pray as we prep our hearts for this moment to receive God's word. God of heaven and earth, you care about what's happening here right now. You, can say, you care about all the individual stories, the joys, and the burdens that they carry into this moment. And we acknowledge that reality, that your word is powerful, that it can speak to us where we're at right now, give us the truth, give us comfort, give us our soul, sense of hope. 
So do all that right now because you have disclosed all those things in the gospel of Jesus Christ and your spirit is here. And through the Holy Spirit, you can continue to open our minds and eyes and hearts and will to receive your word and respond appropriately. So do that now, triune God. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. One of the most dominant stories you hear in American culture is the story of a self-made millionaire. And the city of St. Paul has one of the uh, great stories of that happening, if you know the story of James J. Hill. Maybe you don't know his story, but you've certainly, if, if you've lived here uh, for any length of time, you've probably heard his name or seen uh, buildings named after him, or you might have noted his old mansion on Summit Avenue. And it has all those elements of that type of story, a person that started with nothing and using his hard work and blunt talk. He built an empire of wealth by overcoming adversity and having success and now even name recognition. Hill was born in 1838 in Canada. He comes from uh, Irish migrants. He hit adversity right away because his dad died when he was 14 years old and he lost his sight in his right eye because of a bow and arrow injury. I won't go into details on that one. He was also physically short, described to have a big chest and a long torso and stubby legs, but what he didn't have in his uh, physical characteristics, he had in, had in overcoming in ambition and speech. He was known for being blunt and direct, and as a person who could command attention in any room with his animated speaking. And the other thing he was really known for is that he could outwork anybody. He began his career clerking in shops, including a shop at the St. Paul Levy. After working 20 years in shipping, he eventually joined with a group of investors to buy what was known at the time St. Paul and Pacific Railroad. And it was at the time nearly bankrupt. And after this investment, Hill would spend the next two decades of his life building a massive railroad empire that extended through the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Ocean. And his railroad empire grew so large that in 1904, down at the landmark center in downtown St. Paul, a court ruled that it was a monopoly and they broke it up. Building this empire and amassing the massive wealth, and this wealth would be equivalent, I mean, he's a Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates type of wealth at this time, massive wealth. Building this wealth and being known for this railroad empire that he built was what his life's passion was, is how he wanted to be remembered. He once said, quote, when we are all dead and gone, the sun will still shine, the rain will fall, and this railroad will run as usual. At the end of his life, a newspaper asked him about his secret to success, and Hill answered, quote, work, hard work, intelligent work, and then more work, end quote. He died in his Summit Avenue mansion on May 29th of 1916. And that is another one of those great rags to riches story. And in Western culture, if you listen closely, some of these types of themes are also valued in church leadership and church ministry stories. Themes of starting from nothing, working hard, a vision of a charismatic leader, building a great ministry that is carrying on to the present as well. Maybe will be known in church history books. 
But the reality is, is that it doesn't quite match the gospel story, the gospel narrative, and we should take note of that. The gospel is a totally different story. It's the story of the Son of God who holds all things, all, all things belong to him and are for him, but yet he becomes nothing. And through service and sacrifice, he defeats the empires of sin and death and the powers of this world in order to save those of us, all of us, who never deserve that type of sacrifice and service. American culture values a rags-to-riches story. The gospel proclaims the story of the riches gone and put on rags for the sake of others. And what story shapes us and our imagination and our passion and our vision matters. And Paul is going to remind us about that yet again. As I mentioned, we're closing out an important section in 1 Corinthians. Paul is wrapping up his first item of concern that he's been addressing since chapter 1. And in chapter 5, he'll pivot to another issue that he wants to address. And what he's been addressing is a congregation that's been shaped more by the culture's view of power, wisdom, and influence rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this worldly vision has attached its value to certain human leaders, and the church is willing to divide over that reality. And Paul wants to bring the church back together through a cross-centered vision of a crucified Messiah and leaders who look and act more like that crucified Messiah. And so we're going to consider Christian leaders yet again today and consider how Christian leaders are those who are faithful leaders, are those who are willing to become garbage in the eyes of the world, and Christian leaders are those who are worth imitating. So let's start on that first point. Christian leaders are faithful servants. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. Verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So this is the congregation he's addressing. Those that are judging their faith by the leaders they associate themselves with and by these worldly categories rather than the cross-central categories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For them in this this congregation, the form of a message matters more than the content. The prestige of a leader matters more than that person's character. In fact, since their own inflated understanding of self was attached to the swagger of Christian leaders, they were willing to divide with one another in fellowship and form different tribes based on these charismatic personalities. Paul is correcting them here. And he begins unpacking this cross-centered view again of Christian leadership. Christian leaders, he reminds them, are servants who are entrusted with the mysteries of God, which is another way of saying that they're entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this servant of Christ, entrusted with the gospel, must be proven faithful. Faithful according to who, though? Does the church of Corinth judge faithfulness? Does Paul himself judge himself to be faithful? 
And the answer Paul gives to these questions is surprising at first. He essentially says, I don't care what you think, the church. I don't even care what I think about myself. Now, it should strike you as odd that that is his initial answer because imagine going into a work review and that's your posture, right? You're sitting down with your supervisor, your boss for a nice annual review and your posture towards them, what you say, and as he hands you the review papers to go over, he says, I don't really care about those papers. I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think, right? You would come off as an unhinged employee, and he might take those papers back and hand you a pink slip instead. So what is going on here? We have to understand the context because it's not quite that that's going on in this situation. Within the context of this letter and the entirety of Scripture, what Paul is promoting here is something different. A congregation, we know in the rest of Scripture, should care about the leaders and provide accountability to leaders. Each leader should care about his own or her own integrity and their own leadership. But a healthy concern and accountability is not what Paul is addressing here. And that's not how the posture of this church is towards Paul. Remember, this is their issue. Their assessment of leaders, how they judge a leader to be faithful, is based on worldly categories and not the gospel. So Paul is seeking to correct that, and since their categories aren't shaped by Scripture, they're not shaped by the gospel, that's why he says, I don't care what you say, because the way you're even assessing Christian leadership is so far off. And in fact, I don't care what I think because I can get in my own head and be really hard on my, my own type of leadership. But at the end of the day, what matters is not how you think of Christian leaders or how I think of Christian leaders. All he's saying is the ultimate standard of judgment is no human authority but God and God alone. And Paul is applying that standard to himself. His own assessment of himself doesn't ultimately matter. Only God's assessment of himself matters. Paul is not saying that he's perfect and that he clears the test. He acknowledges that he is not a perfect leader, but he's driven by God's judgment and God's standards of his Christian leadership and not his view or a worldly view of Christian leaders. Verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Paul reminds them there's a real day coming when Christian leaders will be judged by the Lord as all people would be judged by the Lord. And on that day, a Christian leader will not be able to hide anything. Even the motivations of their heart in leadership will be exposed and laid bare in that day. Christian leaders will be held to account, and hypocrites will be exposed. They may be able to deceive people in this life, but in that day they will not be able to deceive the Lord. But even for the imperfect yet faithful servant leader of God, God in that day will take joy in that person's service. Did you see that when it says, at that time each will receive their praise from God? There'll be a moment for Christian leaders one day at the day of judgment where, like a parent who is pleased with his child, God will say, well done, my son, well done, my daughter. And that affirmation one day is what Christian leaders strive for and live for and find their faith and hope and assurance in. Look at verses uh, 6 through 7. 
Paul continues, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. You may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a fellow one of us, a follower of one of us, over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Do not go beyond what is written. When Paul uses that phrase, it's likely not a direct reference from Scripture, but a slogan they're familiar with uh, in the church of Corinth. And the point is, is that Scripture reveals the standard of Christian leadership. Scripture reveals the standard of Christian leadership. If you noted in your bulletin, we have an annual celebration that's coming up where we are going to do a bunch of different things, but one of the things is we're hoping to call a couple more Christian leaders and a couple elders. And we've done this many times throughout our history, called elders, called deacons. We've called folks to lead community groups and Bible studies and learning groups. And it's fascinating that as we're trying to assess Uh, the calling of Jesus on individual lives and putting them in these positions, one of the things that you have to keep on going back to is the the clarity in which Scripture speaks as to what our main emphasis in those situations ought to be. What are we really looking for when we're looking to call a Christian leader? And I want to read a couple passages for you just to have you listen with your ears as you're thinking about what is Christian leadership? What does Scripture say about Christian leadership? And what does Scripture emphasize about a Christian leader? Let me first read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this is talking about uh, the office of an elder, or it says it, it, it uses the title overseer in this passage. Paul writes there, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, uh, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do that so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, He must, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil." He must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. That's an elder. Let's go on to deacon, verses 8 through 13. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. And they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as we meditated on those verses, one of the things you hopefully noted is that there's a sense that what is being described here is a very ordinary Christian. Isn't that what you should hear? Like, isn't there a sense that this is what all Christians should aspire to, not just church leaders? We are Protestants. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. So there's a sense you listen to that and you're like, well, 
every Christian should be this type of character and this type of person. And other than the elders calling to be able to teach, there's a sense that this should apply to every one of us that are gathered here today. So why is it being emphasized with church leaders? And it's to bring us back to that point that when you raise up a church leader, there is that sense that they embody ordinary, normal, sacrificial, gospel-centered leadership. And that you are raising that person up to be a leader because they are a great example of ordinary Christianity that's saturated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the emphasis of a leader is so that the rest of us as we get around these leaders that are in these positions that we can look at them and their life and their character and say, yes, that's what I'm called to be like as well. That's who I am to to be in light of Jesus Christ and his calling as well. And Paul reminds us that if a Christian leader embodies these things, should they boast about it? Should we praise those leaders? And he says, no, that makes no sense. Everything we have is a gift. If you excel in some of these characteristics, that's a gift from God. And if you have leaders in your church that embody these things, that's a gift. So why boast about leaders? Why boast about yourself? If everything's a gift, the praise needs to go to God, not us and not the type of leaders we follow or even leaders boasting in our own abilities. No, we boast in God because he is the great gift giver and everything we have is from him. The second thing we see about church leadership here is that church leaders are the types of people that are willing to become garbage. Now let me unpack that because that's how Paul puts it in this passage. So let's, let's get there, but before I read even verses 8 through 10, to start to set this up, I want, I want you to appreciate this, this passage again before I read it. Because what Paul is trying to do is he's using speech in a way that is supposed to be ironic. Because he's reminding himself as he writes this that the church in Corinth, their view of themselves is shaped by worldly standards and not the cross. So they're shaped by this bad theology that says that all the good things that God promises to us, such as reigning with him, as something that we can experience now in an overrealized sense. All these good things that, 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 that we can have as believers, that should be what we are experiencing now, and that is their self-perception. So Paul takes that on because that perception of themselves as the Christian life being one of the richness and fame and all this type of thing is in stark contrast for the reality of what some apostles experience. And so with that in mind, this is how Paul unpacks that irony. He says, already you have all you want. You've already become rich. You've already begun to reign, and without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles, these other Christian leaders, on display at the end of a procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you, you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're so strong. You are are honored, and we are dishonored. See, for some in the church of Corinth, they already have so much. They're strong, honorable, and wise according to these worldly standards. And on the other hand, there are these examples of Christian leaders who are weak, dishonored and foolish and they the the folks in Corinth have already started to live like God has wrapped up history but these apostles 
are still being openly mocked and condemned. And he uses this illustration of a procession to make his point. In ancient times, a procession occurred after a victorious battle where those who were in charge and the soldiers and the generals would march through a city and the procession, a parade, and at the end of the parade, there would be the enemies on display for all to see these defeated enemies and they would be ridiculed and mocked. And so Paul is saying, you are reigning like a king, but Christian leaders are being treated like enemies by the world. So who's right? Paul continues to describe this reality in verses 11 through 13. He says, To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up until this moment. No matter how you read that, that is not a picture of worldly success. And many people would not aspire to have that view of them in leadership. And indeed, if that's what motivates somebody to become a leader, then don't ever sign up for Christian leadership. Here's your warning. Because Paul is becoming very clear that Christian leadership is not achieving some type of a success like a James J. Hill. It's becoming scum of the earth and garbage of this world. It's more like that type of pathway. And Paul wants us to know that. That's what it looks like. One day it will get better when God wraps up history in Jesus Christ. And on that day, a Christian leader will hear the affirmation that they work for. Well done, good and faithful servant. And they'll hear that by grace and the gift of grace. But they won't hear that now necessarily, and that is not what motivates them. Good Christian leaders today might not experience the same measure of persecution and ridicule of this early church situation, or maybe even uh, brothers and sisters in the global south today. But nonetheless, Christian leaders are still called to service and sacrifice and simply being okay if they're never recognized, never encouraged, and never make it big. Whether they're paid staff at a church or volunteer leaders, that's not what drives a good Christian leader. And if you ever aspire to Christian leadership, or maybe if you are in Christian leadership, these are the types of questions you should be asking yourself. Am I willing to give rather than get? Am I willing to love no matter what, even if those that I'm serving do not love me back? Am I willing to endure and persevere in Christian leadership even if things get hard? That's what Paul is pointing out. This is not an easy pathway, this, this calling of Christian leadership. It's one of the reasons, and this is like a small application point before we move on to the third and final point, why I think um, men and women in vocational leadership especially uh, benefit from being licensed or ordained in a church body or a denomination or a network or whatever it is. And the reason for that is because that's how callings are clarified. I remember being, going through that process of being ordained and 
Um, I was, I was, it was during the service where they're commissioning me and all that type of thing, and my, one of my mentors, my spiritual father, gets up, gives a charge, and then it's my turn to give a response, and I just couldn't get through it. I, just, I was bawling my eyes out. I think somebody, I had a friend of mine take a video of it, and I'm so embarrassed by how sad, uh, or not sad, but overcome with joy I am, I just don't even want to see what he recorded. That's how I remember it. And I think what I was sensing in that moment of this affirmation of calling is this is how God's voice through Christ speaks to leaders. It's, this, it's not just like ticking all the boxes and passing assessments and having all the, the right uh, entrepreneurial gifts or any of that type of thing. It's this deep sense in your bones and in your heart that what you need to do is to step up into this role of being a group leader, being a deacon, being an elder, whatever it is, because King Jesus is calling you to do this. And the thing that motivates you to both step up into leadership and to stay in leadership even when things get tough is this deep sense in the core of your being that the reason I'm doing this is not to get applause, but because Jesus simply is calling me to do this and I want to be faithful and I want to be loving and I want to pour my life out for this cause. And when you have that deep sense of assurance through a community of believers that affirm this call of Jesus on your life, you're more willing to endure when things go sideways in ministry and when things seem to be falling apart. The third and final point is that Christian leaders are worth imitating. Look at verses 14 through 17. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you have you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I loved, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, who agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Even in this moment, Paul is still driven by this fatherly affection for the church. He says that he has become your father through the gospel. What he is saying is that he is the one that gave him the gospel. He's the one that maybe led many people to Christ in this church and nourished them with that gospel so they could grow in their faith. And when you do that, when you share your faith with somebody like that, you become, for that person, a father or mother in the gospel. And he contrasts this with 10,000 guardians. And he's basically saying that's the maybe ancient equivalent of like 10,000 nannies, 10,000 child care providers. And he's saying that they're great and they serve a good purpose, but none of them can be like a parent. None of them have the same affection as a father and a mother. And that's what my relationship is like towards you. It's not some type of profession. It's not some type of thing that I do because I, I'm getting paid to do this work. It's because I have this deep connection to you like a father or mother does to a parent. And that's why he loves them. That's why he cares about this hot mess that's happening in Corinth. It's because he's driven by this loving, fatherly affection towards this church. And he even says that that's why he's poured his life out for Timothy, who's going to be the one that's, that, 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 that carries forth this gospel to them and this, this um, example of the gospel to this church. So that's why he says, imitate me. Imitate me, because I'm your parent. I'm your father. Paul's life is defined by the cross, and in closing chapters, he'll show you how it's defined by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is not being arrogant and asking them to, to look at him and do what he does. 
because he's asking them to imitate his humility and his embrace of the folly of the cross. What he writes is that he's not a big deal. He's only a servant. It's not about a competition between him and other leaders or ministries. He just wants them to unite around a common gospel, a common cause, a common call to sacrifice so that God can grow them and their church in that gospel. And that's what a good mentor and spiritual father and mother is, is someone who's forming you to be like them because they have been formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things I think we often think about with Christian discipleship and mentoring is we, and we're an intellectual crowd, so it makes sense, you throw books at the idea. You, know, you, have, a, you have a problem, like read this book, read this article, read this thing that I, I found, I read recently on social media, and that, that's part of it. There's nothing wrong with reading and getting good information, but the Bible keeps coming back to, if you really want to see the Word of God, and what it looks like in somebody's life, look at a spiritual father, look at a spiritual mother, look at a mentor in your life that embodies ordinary Christianity in a way that's inspiring and do what that person does. I mean, we all know that imitation is one of the most concrete way, influential ways that we form other people. Here's an example, maybe you're a parent, right? And you think to yourself, you know, I'm a parent, I do pretty good. I don't, I don't have a foul mouth, I don't swear. But then all of a sudden, one of your offspring goes around and starts cussing. And you're like, what? Who taught you how to say that? And they said, I heard you say it. And you're like, I did, right? And that's the type of thing that happens sometimes as a parent is not just the, the good things that they're picking up, maybe in your life, but sometimes you might be preaching to yourself that I'm really not that bad about this type of act. But then your kids remind you, eh, Actually, I pick up your bad habits, too, as well as your good ones. That's the power of imitation. That's the power of living with somebody in community and fellowship is that you start to pick up the Christian life through the embodied work of another person. And the other thing that Paul wants to say before he closes is that a good fatherly-like leadership in Christian churches also protects the church if necessary. Look at verses 18 through 21, these closing verses. He says, some of you have become arrogant, as, I, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? So Paul is getting very direct here. He's identifying some in this church who are really arrogant, and they don't think that Paul is going to do much about it. But Paul makes it clear he will come back to this congregation in person, and Lord willing, he will do it. But in order to find out who is arrogant, he may have to come in power. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So what is Paul threatening them with there? What does he mean here by power? Is he going back to this congregation to start the equivalent of a bar fight? Is that what's happening? This type, is it a type of physical threat? No. If we've been listening to Paul throughout this time, we know that's not what he is doing, and that's not how he thinks about power, is physical power. Remember, again, 
part of the problem is that there are people in this church that are arrogant, and they think that power resides in the ways and wisdom of the world. But Paul knows that the true power in this life is in the power of the cross of Christ and the ways of the gospel. And Paul knows that if it comes to it where he's going to be there and it's a confrontation of powers between worldly power and the power of the cross, he knows what will win in the end. It's only the power of the cross that changes hearts. It's only the power of the cross that changes a self-serving leader into a Christ-centered leader. And he knows that power is more powerful than any worldly power. And he is all in on the power of love and humility and service and sacrifice. So he makes it clear the choice is theirs. Which one are you going to turn to? What type of church leader do you need me to come back to be? I want to be gentle, he says to you, but he is willing to bring the rod of discipline. And we'll unpack a little bit more what he means by that next week when he starts to turn to a specific situation that is um, bringing sin into this church. Now let me conclude with this idea as, I, as we wrap up this reflection on church leadership and the issues that are facing this church in ancient Corinth. And one of the things I hope you've been hearing in the last several weeks from, from chapters 1 to now at the end of 4 is the overlap with the themes here with our current cultural moment. These verses have been dealing with church division, the fracturing of the church into different tribes based on personalities, and the breaking of Christian fellowship due to worldly views. That's what's happening in the church of Corinth. And right now we're experiencing some similarities as we are in this pressure cooker of COVID-19 and the cultural tribalism that I know, based on conversations with some of you, has been stressing out relationships that you have in your life with family and with brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that these realities have been, been putting pressure on those relationships. And may, maybe you've even had a situation where somebody has broken fellowship with you over these issues. And one of the reasons I want to preach through 1 Corinthians, because I think it answers these types of questions, is how do we overcome this moment that we find ourselves in? And what type of church leaders do we need to help us to unite together? And what's not going to get the church out of these pressures is not hard work, per se, or the latest ministry philosophy, or just choosing the side of your favorite charismatic leader. If you're listening to Paul, none of that is going to fix division in the church. None of those things. And one of the things that I keep coming back to preach to myself and the things that I'm starting to tell our church leaders, our deacons, our elders here, is the thing that gets us through this moment is stubborn, Christ-like love. That you have these relationships with people that they're this close to breaking fellowship over you because of views of masks and vaccines or whatever it is, but you stare that person in the eyes and you know that person believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and you might have different convictions about these things, but you say in your soul, I will not let this break fellowship with you because of the stubborn love of Jesus Christ. And I want to embody that love to you. I'm not going to divide over this. I'm not going to break fellowship over these things because the cause of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel is way more important than this junk. 
And I'm going to hold this fellowship. I'm going to hold this relationship together, motivated by love. So that's what we want here in this church. That's what I pray for in this church in this moment, is that we just have church leaders that love you, that they're just stubbornly committed to you in patience and graciousness and love, and that's what's going to hold this church together. I am convinced that that's the power that holds church together, because that's the power that we find in the cross. Not power from the world, but power from that precious message of a crucified Messiah that pours out his life in committed love to us sinners. And our church leaders, that's what we're called to in this moment. And all ordinary Christians are called to that same stubborn love for one another. And if we are, and if we do that as a church, and other churches around our city and around our country do that, that's what will pull a fragmented, divided church back together, is the powerful love of Jesus Christ displayed in the cross. Let's go now to a time of communion, where we have another...